Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So guys, have we heard the latest of the zebra debacle? The latest zebra debacle? You don't know about the zebras? I'm not sure I know about the zebras. I know about zebras. I'm a big fan. Well, there there are uh, formerly three, now sadly only two, zebras running amok in southern Maryland in Prince George's <gasps> County. Oh, yeah. I heard and about they that. they have not been able to catch them. And their latest plan is somehow to use more zebras to catch the zebras, which I got to be honest, I, I don't fully understand how that's supposed to work. Subtraction by additions of zebras. I just do not understand how these things are so hard to see and define because this is not the camouflage. I don't know what environment zebra camouflage <laughs> is made for, but unless they're out there at night, they should just try going out during the day because at that point, it seems like they would be very visible and very noticeable. Can we just all admit that in this case, the Brits do it better and it should be called a zebra? Do they call it a zebra? I think it's a zebra. I've never heard that. I think it, I think it should be a zebra. My oh boy! But anyway, so the thing with zebras is, I think that the reason they're camouflaged that way is because tigers are colorblind. I mean, I definitely made that up, but it might be true. Oh, that's really interesting. But we're not, so I just still didn't explain why we're having a problem. Look, man, they've they've evaded capture. I actually am colorblind, <laughs> but the rest of you are not. So you all need to get out there. Scott is my point. Anderson. Mediocre zebra hunter. <laughs> and hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security Host Protocol. I am that host, Scott Anderson of Lawfare, and I am joined today by my two co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And we are very excited to be joined by none other than Lawfare's own cybersecurity fellow, Alvaro Marignon. Hello, Alvaro. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. Super excited to talk about zebras and more. All right. Well, we're excited to have you on the podcast today. Is this the first time we've had you on Rational Security? Yes, but not the first time listening. There you go. There you go. You've bested Molly. You're, exactly. It's Molly Reynolds standard right there. You know what the question is coming next. That's good. That's good. I'm glad you've been studying up. But we are here today, and we're excited to have everybody listening in for the Linked Out edition, as we are going to dig into three topics taken from probably not the front pages of these particular stories, but interesting stories taken from probably that middle fat part of the newspaper that we thought were worth bringing your attention to. Our first topic of the day, some professional news. LinkedIn is leaving China over the challenges of complying with its strict regulations on social media. Will other companies follow, and should they? Topic two, Diamond Joe's decryption key party. Last week, the White House hosted a summit on combating ransomware, but Russia wasn't invited. What does that tell us about international efforts to combat cybercrime? Topic three, how do you stop a schoolyard brawl? What should the Department of Justice do about violent threats against school principals and other public employees responsible for enforcing masking updates? 
For our first topic, let me hand it over to you, Quinta. So LinkedIn, if you are in China, uh, was until very recently, I think, the only U.S.-based social network that you could access without having to somehow evade the Great Firewall. LinkedIn had a product in China. It was fully accessible. People could use the platform to network professionally with people all around the world using LinkedIn, not needing to you know, use a VPN or anything like that. But that is no more. As of last week, a couple of days ago, Microsoft announced that it is pulling LinkedIn out of China. It's going to keep a sort of watered down LinkedIn with no social content available within the country. So basically LinkedIn, but only the job board part. So no commenting, no messaging, none of that. This is really a striking moment, I think, if we look at U.S.-China relations and China's relationship with technology platforms more broadly. Like I said, this was kind of the last American platform that was available freely in China. I think the fact that Microsoft decided to leave is you know, indicative of the the general chill in relations between the U.S. and China and the extent to which the Chinese Communist Party has really been sort of cracking down on what free expression there was within China. I think it also raises a lot of questions about how we should think about tech companies' responsibilities in this space. I mean, on the one hand, you know, LinkedIn leaving China, I think you can make a pretty good argument that it is bad for a lot of people in China. It sort of destroys an opportunity to network, to communicate with people outside of the country. You know, if you're in China and you're looking for jobs in the United States, you no longer have that ability to sort of exchange messages easily on this platform. On the other hand, you know, we see tech platforms all around the world making compromises that people are less than comfortable with in order to stay operating in authoritarian countries or countries that are cracking down on freedom of expression. So Russia, recently Twitter has been getting in a lot of fights with uh, the Indian government over compromises that India has been really pushing in terms of removing information from Twitter's platform. So I think it's a really tough question. You know, did Microsoft do the right thing here? And how should we understand it? And what does this mean for sort of the broader future of not only free expression, but also, you know, technology policy in and toward China? It's, I think, a really interesting development because as far as I'm aware, I think this is the first time we've seen a company do this in kind of a very public way. I mean, there's no way, real quiet way to do this, right? But Microsoft is very open saying, look, we're trying to kind of trying to split the baby a little bit. There's still going to be this job posting app, but the social media part of this is going away. But a lot of ways, that's like the edge of LinkedIn, right? That's what makes LinkedIn not just a job board program, but makes it a networking opportunity, a vehicle by which people, and it's one of these things that I don't fully appreciate as somebody who's not in the private sector and never really has been for any substantial period. But like a lot of industry people really, for them, LinkedIn is the main social media tool in the tech industry and lots of other industries and lots of different companies, kind of the way in media, Twitter tends to, I think, play that role a little bit more. And so for Chinese business people who want to do business with the outside world, this is actually a potentially a big problem for them. It makes them potentially less marketable, less ability to build the networks, to build the business connections. So I think there are real costs here for China, even though it may seem sort of nominal. And people saying, well, look, China has these own homegrown alternatives that are pretty widely subscribed to. Yes, but they're widely subscribed to 
primarily by like Chinese business people. And so insofar as they are rely upon building ties or want to build ties outside of China to build their businesses, to draw in new opportunities, to find new opportunities for themselves, this is a big hit to them. And something that I think China has to think about a little bit if this is going to become a broader trend of these companies saying, you know what, this just isn't worth all the burden. The other thing that strikes me is I, I think for this perspective, the United States and maybe other governments for whom China's policies raise a lot of really troubling questions and problems, and not just these policies, lots of other policies too, right? We talked about hostage taking by China, hostage diplomacy, things like that in prior episodes, really making clear that there are costs here for companies, highlighting them and making sure companies actually feel them may not be bad because it kind of corrects the market drive. You know, China's got this whole very powerful economic pull factor, pulling people in to engage with economically. But maybe there's some way to counteract that by making clear that there are these real consequences for substantial numbers of people with that level of engagement. And that's a way you may be able to calibrate a little bit of the disengagement. I don't think anybody really thinks completely disengaging from China economically is likely, but there might be ways to tailor it a little bit more, or at least do it in ways that disincentivize some of China's most problematic behavior. And this strikes me as a, as a sign that some of those tools may have some effects even in sectors like, or especially in sectors like tech and social media. So I, I think the question of whether or not what Microsoft did is the right thing depends a lot on what we think the consequences of this will be. And, and you have to balance these two considerations, which are kind of impossible to know about, but we can at least hypothesize about them, right? On the one hand, there's this question of, well, look, as long as Chinese citizens can access Western social media, then Western values and those sorts of things can continue to make their influence in China. And that is important for the long-term viability of liberal democratic values in China. Right? And this was the original idea behind bringing China into the developed economic system and a lot of the hopeful ideas of the effects of the internet on China and frankly, other repressive and authoritarian regimes. But that does not seem to have worked particularly well. And, and as we've seen, not just in China, but also in, in places like Russia and, and other authoritarian countries, the internet has largely become a tool for greater oppression, not freedom. And this is especially true for social media platforms, uh, especially those that either voluntarily or because they have legal compulsion to do so, give information to authoritarian governments that those governments then use to continue their grip on power. So in this case, you're balancing on the one hand that it's a good thing generally for Chinese people to be connected to the liberal democratic world. On the other hand, do you want to be in a situation in which Microsoft is potentially having to share information with the Chinese government, as we know, happens with Apple's presence in China, right? Which is, uh, I think, the really interesting question of, you know, whether Apple will follow Microsoft uh, at all. I, I'm pessimistic about that, but but that's a different conversation. And, and right now, um, I think that the Chinese government and Xi Jinping have made it very clear that they are going to follow an increasingly authoritarian approach. They have no particular interest in any sort of move towards liberal democracy. And in that case, they have decided that they're not interested in the liberal democratic internet. And I think it's totally reasonable for the liberal democratic internet to not be interested in China. If it's a tragedy, of course, for the Chinese people, it's also not great for those outside China who want to interact, right? And again, you know, it's just LinkedIn, but it's the symptom of a broader phenomenon. And so I'm quite impressed, to be perfectly frank, with Microsoft. And I think this is one of the, these rare situations in which a company has really kind of put its money where its mouth is, as it were, and acted to advance its values. And I, I give Microsoft an enormous amount of respect for that. 
And to quickly build upon the, did Microsoft do the right thing here? Cut the question. And also the liberal democracies. I don't know, this, to me, this also was, was great. You know, they, they drew the line in this global like content moderation type of approach. But it also reminded me of the push we see in liberal democracies for more authoritarian, like control over content. You know, traditional liberal democracies would value free speech. You know, they value freedom of expression, like freely exchange ideas. But we've seen like a recent push, at least in the United States, for more control over these types of discussions, which kind of, you know, goes back to China. Like this is kind of similar to what China wants. And a lot of liberal democracies are kind of pushing towards that way of more control over content moderation, saying as in take certain content that's good or bad away from it. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point and something I've been thinking about. I recorded a, a podcast the other week about Russia and its sort of recent aggressive efforts to constrain what the internet ecosystem looks like within Russia and even outside it when it comes to content produced by RT, which is the the state propaganda channel. And this is so this is hopping from one authoritarian country to another. But one of the really interesting things about the rationale that the Kremlin used was that it was sort of explicitly saying, well, you know, we we're just trying to, you know, crack down on disinformation and make sure that the Russian people get, you know, the good information that that they need to be participants in society, which is very transparently trolling and sort of trying to use the rhetoric that the United States uses against the U.S. by trying to sort of crack down on internet freedoms. And I do think that that, you know, it puts the United States in a weird position because on the one hand, there are a lot of problems with the internet and, you know, big social media companies could do better with content moderation. But at the same time, when you look at a situation where an authoritarian country can kind of take that rhetoric and use it to its own ends, I I agree. I sort of, I end up feeling like, I, I don't know to what extent it makes sense for, say, U.S. legislators and regulators to incorporate that into their thinking about what they should do, but it does feel like these downstream effects sometimes get not given the attention that they deserve. So I, I understand the theoretical argument that Quinta, you and, and Alvaro are making. I, I get to say I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that China is waiting for U.S. politicians to make demands for content moderation so that they can then justify their demands for censorship and surveillance, right? I mean, China, Russia, other large, whether they're superpowers or just big, important countries, right? They're not waiting for our permission to do anything. And so I, I think it's important not to fall into a kind of a false equivalency trap of saying that because China massively censors its internet and requires all state-owned companies and frankly, all companies in China to provide information on users, that that is in any way equivalent to the American CDC asking Facebook to please remove vaccine nonsense or or even right or even of republican legislatures in florida and texas trying to limit you know quote unquote censorship right now we can have an argument about whether we should be doing any of that in the united states and i that's a good argument to have but i i'm just not convinced that on the margin it makes much of a difference i think they're going to do the chinese and the russians and so on they're going to do what they're going to do now maybe that's not true for a country like india right which has a much more vibrant democracy and and where I, I think maybe the government has to convince its people a little bit more that what it's doing is in line with what other countries are doing. You know, I think that's an interesting possibility, but I, I don't think it makes any difference for China. 
Yeah, no, I agree with the false equivalencies. I'm not trying to say China and U.S. are even close to that type of realm. But I do think there is a danger with the U.S. being the first mover. Uh, you can see, especially in privacy, a lot of the privacy laws that we've pushed in the United States have been replicated in other countries that are traditional liberal democracies. Let's look at Brazil, like a lot of different laws they're trying to replicate or based on the U.S. or all their different types of countries. And it doesn't work well in those countries because they'll use the guise of, okay, you have the United States that is a free speech, you know, fighter for everything. And then they'll say the United States, despite this freedom of protection of speech, continues to undermine or wants to undermine these certain protections. So we often see these replications of approaches, even if they're not sustainable. It's just something that I was just saying, like, in congressional discussions like these are happening, we kind of have to look out to see what the lasting effects are in the global, I guess, internet ecosystem. I will say the the one thing that keeps striking me every time we come back to this conversation and this sort of area of topics, and Quinta, I know it's something you and I have talked about in other contexts before, is just the real cultural difference with how these social media companies think about what they're doing and the value it brings and what it lets them justify. Because if you think about it, even goes going back to kind of the original framing that Alan, I think you adapted initially, although I'm not, I'm not putting this on you because I think it's very much like kind of the way they frame it, where they're saying, oh yeah, we're bringing this thing that is like a universal good. Like everybody agrees, like getting these people on social media is a good thing. And, but it's kind of a little bit pretty self-justifying, you know, convenient narrative there to say, oh yeah, well, our vehicle of getting people on social media is an inherent good. So the question then becomes, well, at what point do there's enough limitations, caveats, footnotes, and restrictions make it so it's no longer universal good? That's pretty far off to one line. But it's, you know, there's no either public entitlement necessarily to those services, nor am I clear to me 100% that they are always as much of a social good as we warranted. I think certainly access to the global community is, but these things very quickly become very constrained, very ineffective, very selective gateways to the international community that often has very high costs. So I'm just not sure that uh, I, that narrative I always find a little troubling and, and the extent to which we buy into it. Uh, and the fact that it's something that these social media companies always bring up time and time again, every time we come to this conversation, is just really interesting. It's a rhetorical move. I believe they actually wholeheartedly believe it because you can see it shaping a lot of the way they do these things. But I think it's something that maybe we would all be better kind of reevaluating or bringing down to earth a little bit. I think it just puts the cost too heavily on extending these technologies and doesn't properly weigh them versus potential costs. So I think that broadly, you are right I agree that it is best to be skeptic. I mean, when Facebook goes and talks about how, you know, it's really just important to them to build global community or whatever it is that their line is. I mean, that's like farcical, obviously. At the same time, it is true that, you know, WhatsApp, for example, which is a Facebook product, is really important to a lot of people. And when there was a WhatsApp outage or when it briefly looked like WhatsApp wasn't going to be accessible in Afghanistan after the U.S. withdrawal, like that was a big problem for a lot of people who like couldn't contact their families for a long period of time. And so, you know, I, I agree that you know, when Apple or Facebook briefly, right, was looking into China and they were saying, you know, we really think it's important to, you know, expand our global community. Like, that's ridiculous. On the other hand, when you get to a situation where the last U.S.-based social media platform is pulling out, I do think that it's fair to acknowledge that, like, there is a loss there. And people, I don't want to speak for people in China, but it does strike me that it just became a bit more difficult for, you know, someone who's studying in Beijing 
and wants to get a job at, you know, an American research university or something like that, like it just got a little harder. And I think that, you know, that is a loss. It's on a different scale than the sort of big sweeping abstract rhetoric about freedoms, but I do think it's worth paying attention to. Well, speaking about professional networking, there was a very interesting meeting that took place in Washington, D.C. just this past week at the White House, or organized by the White House, not actually at the White House, uh, representatives from a large collection of countries, all of which have wrestled with ransomware issues assembled to discuss a common agenda and how to combat ransomware over the course of several days with pretty high-level representation, including on the U.S. side, including National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan being one of the more prominent votes who are out there, Jen Easterly, a few other people who are kind of senior in the National Security cyber side of the U.S. government, and came out with nothing comprehensive yet, but kind of a framework, a joint statement that kind of laid out an agenda for building a strategy towards dealing with ransomware that included capacity building, included a common approach and information sharing, also included a lot of discussion about diplomacy and norms building, which is always a part of these kind of international cyber conversations. And then, but notably perhaps were some of the people who weren't in the room, Russia being the big state that's kind of left out in the cold, so to speak, while the rest of these diplomats are hobnobbing and discussing about the ransomware problem, uh, which Russia knows very well, but from a little bit of a different perspective. Alvaro, I want to turn to you first on this. Tell us a little bit more about this summit and what should we should be taking away from it in terms of the big takeaways. What does it tell us about the direction we see the United States and the international community moving in in regard to combating ransomware? Yeah. So the summit was very, very important and influential for a few reasons. It first uh, signaled a renewed diplomatic approach to ransomware. Currently, it's very individualistic with countries. There's no unifying voice or, I guess, agenda. And this summit, while it did not produce anything binding, did show promise. So uh, there was a joint statement, as Scott mentioned, that highlighted four issue areas, countering illicit finance, disruption, other law enforcement efforts, network resilience, and renewed diplomacy. And so the importance of this is that further countries are signing on after the fact. So it was initially 30 countries and more countries like Australia are making joint statements in support. And and the attendance included Czech Republic, Dominican Republic, Lithuania, Mexico, uh, Romania, Singapore, Ukraine. It was a diverse group. So it was beyond the EU and the G7 members, uh, G7 partners. And it was a real comprehensive summit. And from there, the importance is that the Biden administration is again, adopting a more aggressive, comprehensive approach to ransomware. A recent Department of Treasury report revealed that uh, nearly 500 million in Bitcoin transactions have been tied to ransomware payments, or I think seven types of malware specifically. And again, it just shows the, I guess, the intertwined nature between cryptocurrencies and ransomware. So with these efforts push against disrupting ransomware ecosystem through anti-money laundering laws, it shows the United States is adopting a more domestic and collaborative approach to ransomware. Let me actually follow up with one question for you specifically on this, because one thing I was really struck by is that in reading through this joint statement, which was, as far as I know, the only product that came out of this, which isn't unusual for a summit like this, a lot of people talking about a very broad-ranging issue over the course of a few days, usually you get a pretty lowest common denominator sort of like statement saying some soft commitments to do something. This is this is pretty par for the course there. In fact, a little more detailed than a lot of these things tend to look sometimes. But there's one word that's not in it at all. That's cryptocurrency. 
So why is it the joint statement actually doesn't even really directly touch on cryptocurrency? Is it is that a bit of a, a sensitive topic for certain of these parties? Is there a reason why? Because it does seem to fit so centrally in so many of our policy conversations about this. And it did seem to play a big role at the conference. Like it certainly in the coverage of it, it certainly was a recurring theme. I didn't attend myself, obviously, but yet doesn't appear in this joint statement. What's, what's, what's the reasoning behind that, if you have any idea? Yeah, that's an interesting point. Also, especially given the real the recent uh, collaborative operations, look at the Interpol. I know in Ukraine they took down like two big uh, ransomware operators. So I don't have an official response, but I think part of this has to do with the fact that a lot of this is individualistic by countries. So while you can have a I guess renewed approach to combating anti money laundering laws or know your own customer types of regulations, a lot of countries already do lack that. And so while you can create like essentially a floor around what regulation is. I think it's a little bit individualistic up to each country how to address this ransomware problem within their states. I know some countries are a little bit more open to cryptocurrencies and at least more in support of its use. Others are more skeptics. So I guess first unifying against ransomware was the easiest thing to do. And from there, I guess you can move to the bigger problem. So I I mean, I I think another reason for this lack of discussion of cryptocurrency is that there's just still a lot of denial that cryptocurrency is a big part of the problem. So Nick Weaver, friend of the site, has written a number of pieces. He's a, he's in, he's in a bit of a one-man crusade against cryptocurrency because he points out, I think correctly, that let's take something like Bitcoin, right? And it's important here to distinguish between three things, actually, right? There's the blockchain, which is the underlying technology, which is super interesting and super cool. Then there are decentralized cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, which no one owns, no one controls, no one can really track fully. And then there are centralized cryptocurrencies, whether central bank cryptocurrencies or something else. And so when it comes to specifically decentralized cryptocurrencies, the nature of them is such that they are most attractive right now. Their comparative advantage is in facilitating crime, to be clear. Right. Again, to be clear, it doesn't mean that the only reason to have them is to facilitate crime. You can have them because you think they're cool, because you have certain ideological anarcho-capitalist views, because you want to speculate. And one can imagine some interesting use cases of decentralized finance, et cetera, et cetera. But none of that really requires the deeply decentralized kind of classic Bitcoin model, which is designed specifically for pseudonymity and lack of centralized control, right? Which if you're a normie, isn't actually that appealing. But if you're a a ransomware hacker, is incredibly appealing. And so I think that there's just, there's a real lack of, I think, of just accepting the the huge cost of specifically Bitcoin, right? And it's really a shame because the technology is incredibly cool. It's just, it turns out that the use case is, uh, all the legitimate use cases are utterly swamped by the illegitimate use cases. And, and I think that's something that, you know, the international community is going to have to come to terms with sooner rather than, than later. And I think there are some encouraging signs that the U.S. government is realizing this and is pointing out, for example, that, you know, if you facilitate Bitcoin to dollar transactions and it turns out that the transactions you were facilitating were tied to ransomware, you could be liable for that. Right. I mean, this, this is the reality that we need to Im- impose. And so what do we make of the fact that Russia was left out? of this summit. The the New York Times had kind of a, a funny article saying, well, you know, Russia wasn't invited and everybody agreed that they didn't want to invite Russia. But it's not, it's not, literally, this is a quote from the article. It is not that President Biden is freezing the country out of the discussion. I don't really know what to make of that. I will say it apparently it was widely known that until recently, if you had 
a Cyrillic keyboard on your phone that could help protect you against ransomware. It is, alas, no longer true. So don't go out and download a Cyrillic keyboard. But I mean, there's obviously like, we have no idea to what extent the Russian government is behind this. I think there are good arguments that the government itself is not perhaps directly pulling the strings, but ransomware groups are operating on Russian soil. There's a lot of bored Russian teens out there who are doing this. Like, what do we make of the U.S. government's approach to engaging Russia or not? So I, I think it's actually a lot worse than just we know that there's a lot of ransomware coming from Russia. Um, you know, we know that Russia has a thriving cyber hacking industry and that that industry is used by the Russian government for a lot of its own cyber hacking. And when the Russian government is not using that industry for cyber hacking, they have to make some money somehow. And so what they do is their own cyber hacking. And the reason the Russian government tolerates this is because it's good for them to have skilled hackers in their country. And the hackers have designed their malware and their tactics in such a way that Russian computers, Russian systems are not affected. Now, as Quinta points out, they do that in pretty obvious ways by, you know, not infecting any computers with Cyrillic keyboards. They've gotten more... A uh, little clumsy. Yeah, yeah. They, they gotten, I mean, they've gotten a little more sophisticated uh, than that. But I think it's absolutely right for the United States not to invite, not just a country that is not interested in stopping ransomware, but that essentially actively in, encourages it. I think it would have been kind of ridiculous. It would have made the, the event a kind of laughingstock to have Russia there. Yeah, adding to that, also the importance, I think, of Russia, at least the perspective of the Russian-based criminal groups, is how easy it is to buy malware and how, I guess, rampant that industry is. So you don't even have to be a savvy or sophisticated hacker to do so, or, or I guess, like a criminal entrepreneur here uh, to become successful. You could buy malware for 50 bucks, 60 bucks, 70 bucks, and, you know, target any organization that has lacked cybersecurity standards. And from the benefit of Russia, they don't have to take credit for it. They can get access to all these different types of, you know, uh, secret information or other things that are, I guess, these victim organizations aren't paying attention to. And I guess it also reiterates the importance of that not just the U.S. is tired of Russia, but all these other partner countries that sign on to this statement, you know, they're continuing to collaborate with each other despite this lack of involvement or, I guess, dialogue with Russia. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Yeah, I mean, you know, this strategy, I think, is kind of a classic approach that we see in a sort of international affairs to both kind of norm promulgation slash norm busting, right? Like norms ultimately are kind of your ticket into a community, whether it's a community of states, community of a particular region, something along those lines. 
But when you start violating those rules and you get kicked out of the club, people don't engage you the same way. And this strikes me as a very visual representation of that to Russia. I mean, Russia has put itself out on a very unique limb in its open accommodation and embrace of ransomware and a variety of other sorts of cyber criminal activities in sort of a tacit way, but in a way that's undeniable and no one is fooled by at this point. You know, it's hard to point to it and say very clearly, oh, this is where you're breaking this norm, particularly with a state like Russia that is, you know, willing to play hard at ball a little bit more in the diplomatic scene than maybe some other states might be around things like this. But this is your first opportunity to say, hey, look, the rest of us are getting together. We're going to start forming rules against this. And those rules we expect to be enforced in the international community because we're saying these are the rules for states, for the international community. And you can reject that, but that means at a certain point, there are going to be costs to that. Or you can try and find a way to moderate your behavior so we let you into the room. So in that way, it's kind of savvy. And that's why I think the inclusion of the really norm discussion, norm formation language is actually kind of interesting in the joint statement because it's one of these things that's perennially talked about in the cyber realm, but hasn't really been an emphasis of U.S. policy, I feel like, for the, to the same degree it was five or six years ago. Some of that's the Trump administration. It's a unique kind of approach to international issues. Some of it is a little bit, I think, that some of those early efforts kind of moved to a second track or didn't really produce what people thought was going to be a more comprehensive, effective set of guidelines. But bringing it back in here with this more limited set of states might be more effective for de developing a set of rules that then can be pushed out and imposed upon, frankly, other less compliant states and used as a vehicle for imposing costs on them. So I think that's kind of a direction we're likely to see this move in, assuming this takes a kind of process that looks a lot like other diplomatic processes for dealing with these sorts of issues. Speaking of government responses to new threats, let's talk about the Department of Justice and school boards across the nation. Very nice. Thank you. So between debates over masks and vaccinations and the treatment of race and other controversial topics in school curriculum, school board meetings have gotten quite tense all around the country lately. Uh, most cases, fortunately, the worst that we see is a lot of shouting by angry parents. But there have been some physical altercations that have broken out at some of these meetings, and many school officials have received some pretty unpleasant threats. And so in response, Attorney General Merrick Garland released a memo earlier this month, which criticized the, quote, disturbing spike in harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence against teachers and school officials, and noted that while spirited debate about policy matters is protected under our Constitution, that protection does not extend to threats of violence or efforts to intimidate individuals based on their views. Uh, the memo directs U.S. attorneys' offices and FBI field offices to meet with school officials to discuss, quote, strategies for addressing threats and to open dedicated lines of communication for threat reporting, assessment, and response. And while national groups representing teachers and administrators have praised DOJ's actions, there has been a lot of criticism from conservatives and right-wing media um, who argue that this is a big government effort to intimidate parents from expressing their views on their children's education. So, Quinta, let's start with you. What do you think? Do you think this is an appropriate area for DOJ involvement and the federal government in general? Or do you think that this is getting a little bit too close to the line of, of chilling people from being able to fully express their views in as passionate of a way as they feel is appropriate? Well, I think it's creeping fascism, Alan. Um, no, in, in all seriousness, I was struck by DOJ getting involved here, but it didn't strike me as inappropriate, especially given that over the summer, 
the National Security Division and I think the Deputy Attorney General's office released a memo and set up a task force to counter threats against election officials. So this is sort of a maybe similar tactic in a new area, essentially, you know, that the signal that the Justice Department is is taking this really seriously. I mean, I, I will say I have found this sort of trend of extreme harassment of public officials, uh, healthcare workers in some instances. The New York Times had a story about healthcare workers who have quit because they were getting death threats and were tired of being harassed and, you know, followed on their way home to be a really upsetting development in American politics. And it, in a way, reminds me a lot of something that Ben Wittes and I have written a lot about, which is harassment online um, and sort of the way that the internet allows people to really gather and attack others at a scale and a sort of an intimacy that I have thought wasn't possible offline. <laughs> On the other hand, we know, you know, th- that kind of, you know, brigading harassment, just showing up and screaming at someone until they can't take it anymore, seems to sort of increasingly have become a political tactic against public officials. And to extend that comparison of sort of online versus offline harassment a little further, I mean, one of the things that Ben and I have written about is how when people are harassed online, part of the sort of the narrative is often that, you know, they go to the cops and the cops can't do anything or they go to the FBI and the FBI doesn't take their tip or something like that. So it is interesting to me that we're getting a signal now that the Justice Department is sort of, you know, from the top from the attorney general and the deputy attorney general, looking at these threats and taking them seriously. I will be interested to see what form these, you know, the task force on the election side and the the open lines of communication on the school board side take. I mean, we I don't think we've seen any indication of any sort of concrete results coming from this so far, but it does seem like it's, you know, an aspect of politics that is unfortunately not going to go away anytime soon. And it doesn't strike me as crazy for the department to be involved. Well, you know, the one thing I'll say is I I agree with that on a principles level. Like I think it's a serious problem and it needs a serious public policy response, but it's not clear to me exactly what the hook by what the Justice Department is going to be involved would be. I think this is kind of like something, a phenomenon that is was no by no means unique to the Trump administration, but the Trump administration did pretty boldly and aggressively often, and we criticize them for it. And I, and I feel like I have to acknowledge a little bit that's happening here, which is that you issue a statement that implies doing a lot that can't actually do that much about it. Because there aren't, as, I can't think of any federal laws that actually would be brought in by a lot of these cases. You know, violence against a local principal, school principal, school board official, I think would primarily be covered by, you know, state laws, right? Uh, They're the ones that have plenary jurisdiction over this sort of offense. It'd be different if it was like an election thing because the federal government has a stated interest in elections. I'm not aware of the federal government having taken the stick to say things like a mask mandate, which is not required federally, right? Except for federal employees and a few other environments uh, or circumstances is something that has enough of interest in that the angle by which Congress, that Congress, A, has legislated on it. I'm not sure it has. I don't think it has. And B, could legislate on it even. Um, You know, I think there's probably is an argument there. And I I wouldn't be surprised. Certainly, you could see commerce-based arguments for that sort of thing. But it's trickier for the Justice Department to step in and say, like, well, what can they do about this? So I I don't think we're talking about prosecuting these people. What I think you can do is you can be, you know, an information hub. You can bring attention to it. You can do a lot of these soft things that 
the law enforcement does kind of all the time and they make a difference, but, but it's a little more cabined than I think what people might've read this letter to be, which is threatening to prosecute people, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, you know, implying that's what's going to happen. I just don't really see that, that being a legal vehicle. The harder thing that department of justice could do, frankly, is start setting conditions out there on funding that it provides to local police forces or local governments and saying, look, you guys need to take steps to protect these employees at these local public employees better if you're going to get this sort of this funding and make that a condition on it. I think it's very valid. There has to be some sort of nexus between that and the funding in question. But I think you could draw that nexus for a lot of these cases. And maybe that's a step further down the road. We'll see that we'll have real teeth. Um, but otherwise, you're looking much more at a set of carrots that Biden administration can deploy than a set of sticks. And you know, that makes them in a lot of ways a less directly applicable tool to many people's eyes, at least, or one that's less likely to have kind of immediate ramifications. Yeah, all those all those points make sense. I think oh, just two two points, and then I want to turn it over to Alvaro. One is that, I mean, the when I read this letter from Garland, the first statute that came into my mind, if, 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 big if, DOJ were going to want to actually try to prosecute someone at a federal level would be... Uh, 18 U.S.C. 875, which is interstate threats. If you look at online harassment cases, sextortion, non-consensual pornography, 18 U.S.C. 875 is really a workhorse here because if you transmit a threat over the internet, congratulations, that's interstate commerce. So I could imagine a world in which that could be used, but I agree that imagining a prosecution is probably unlikely, though not impossible. Just because, as Alan kind of hinted at the beginning, you know, the the political ramifications of that, I'm sure, would be pretty uproarious. On the second point, your point about sort of funneling information and coordinating, I think, makes a lot of sense to me. And I kind of ragged on the FBI earlier. But to be completely fair, look, like what happens a lot of time with these sorts of threats is that like local police departments just don't know what to do. They're overwhelmed. They don't understand what the hell is going on. And so the FBI is usually the organization that actually can step in and, you know, sort of take control. And so I do wonder, as you say, Scott, whether just having the federal government's presence there to kind of help organize and come up with, you know, an action plan would be really valuable just so local jurisdictions aren't completely overwhelmed. And to build upon the aspect of reporting value here, I think there's tremendous context value here. We don't really know the, the true scope of how bad this problem is. You often get reports of the really bad scenarios, which is obviously rampant throughout the country. But from natural statistics perspective, we don't have much insights. I know the FBI for a while has not updated its hate crime statistics. You know, we've seen reports of increase, but again, we don't know the, the, I guess the context and the scope of this. And I guess, you know, working with field offices to get more reporting, trying to understand how big of a problem this is could also do, be really beneficial if you also leverage the expansion of uh, surveillance technology within the school systems. Uh, you know, remote schooling and all these different uh, softwares have given more insights into what's the dialogue between students and people involved. And I think, you know, working with local community officials and law enforcement, you could definitely see some change, at least from a policy perspective, but not something substantive. Yeah, I I don't know. Look, I don't have any particular objection to DOJ talking to local cops and giving them advice on how to deal with crazy people who issue threats against school board officials and teachers. I don't have a lot of sympathy for those crazy people. And when you read the memo, 
to Quinta's point, it doesn't actually do much, right? It's like a task force to start a task force to start a do group to start a task force, right? So like, again, I think there's a lot of right-wing hysteria here. At the same time, I, I don't think it's, it's as simple as saying, well, look, can we imagine a federal statute that would be violated? And if so, then let's bring the full force of the Department of Justice down on these people, right? There's a question of what is properly the federal government's responsibility and what is properly the state's. And education is, you know, uh, uh, other than the giant funding, federal funding apparatus, but education is generally thought of as a kind of deeply, deeply state-based issue, especially when it comes to things like parents showing up at their school, at their local school boards and expressing their outrage, however misplaced that outrage may be. And, and I do think it's important to think of, you know, how would we think, how would we imagine a similar situation in a Trump or just general Republican administration where DOJ decided to consult with local uh, police departments and local stakeholders because environmental activists were getting really rowdy at local permitting events and trying to block the expansion of you know, mining operations or activists were you know, protesting the police, et cetera, et cetera. And, and look, like we can come up with all sorts of differentiators, but I do think it is important to, to appreciate that, you know, one reason to sometimes not get involved until it escalates to a point where there is a clear federal issue here, right? There is some sort of tra- like national conspiracy of people who are all communicating to harass school boards across the country. But in the absence of that, I mean, I think there is an argument for DOJ to, to sit this one out for now, or at least I think we should take that argument maybe more seriously. Yeah, just to follow up on, on Alan's point, which I think I kind of buy it. The law enforcement tools here are there. I think you know the statute point two is a useful one, Quinta, for certain fact patterns of certain types of threats that are communicated. You know, if they're a threat that rises to the threshold that's required by the statute, which which is a certain threshold, as I recall, I think maybe I don't know if that's in the statute of the DOJ manual, but it has to be like a certain degree of seriousness, I think, before they usually pursue those things, and that. You know, it has this interstate sort of element to it. You could also see like maybe there might be like criminal conspiracy aspects of this or degrees of coordination where they cross state boundaries and that's the federal hook, right? But these are all going to be kind of reaches. And at a certain point, you're you're going to be targeting activities that begins to get closer to political activity. Now, I agree. You can distinguish it when you're talking about a threat of violence, even if it's, you know, some people say it's rhetorical, right? Like when you're threatening violence, that, that's real. But a lot of what's really like the most threatening things I suspect for these people is less like the email messages and more the people showing up at their offices and their homes, chanting and holding signs, um, which, you know, I very much understand why that's threatening, right? But that's the stuff that's hardest to reach with the federal tools. The parallel situation here, as painful as it is to say, like it's probably sanctuary cities under the Trump administration. If you want to find the closest parallel about the set of tools available, you know, you've got a kind of colorable federal interest, but in an area where the states and localities tend to be using kind of lead the policy. And what did the Trump administration end up doing there? They kind of issued a statement that said, oh, yeah, we're going to coordinate, do a bunch of working groups. And then they said, we're going to condition funding, which is why that kind of drives me back to thinking that it seems to be a likely tool here. If you don't think localities are doing their job, then you say, okay, well, then look, if you want your federal funding, then you need to start doing your job better. And you have to tie, tie conditionality to that. And then the question becomes, you know, are you 
actually able to tie that link together enough to make it valid. I think you could, but then then this is a multi-year thing. And it becomes like, well, how long are we in this pandemic? How long are these policies going to have this driving factor? Or is it that we need to start planning for the next public health crisis or comparable situation where we need to make sure localities have better protections for these people in state? That's something that's more achievable in the time frame that those sort of incentive and bargaining could actually act on. And that might be a good step to get ahead of the ball, to recognize that, like, yeah, these people do need protection in these circumstances that we hadn't anticipated. But it's more about addressing the next crisis than, than this one, I think, on that particular front or that particular approach. Yeah. I mean, I think that I don't want to underplay the seriousness of some of these threats. I mean, when we were preparing for this show, Scott had shared with everyone a story about uh, some parents who showed up to a meeting with a principal with zip ties to conduct a, a citizen's arrest. I mean, there are stories of people getting death threats. I, I mentioned of you know people being followed home. Like whether or not that rises to the level of a threat that could be prosecuted, you know, at whatever level of government, I do think I don't want to underplay how jarring that is. And I guess I think the reason that I am less alarmed by DOJ being involved here is because on the one hand, I don't think like Alan, I agree that the kind of test case of what would you think about this if it were the Trump administration is a really useful one. Ultimately, in this case, I don't think it changes my mind because the thing that I object to here isn't at the core, the fact that parents are bringing zip ties to a meeting because they're angry about masks or you know critical race theory, it's that they're bringing zip ties to a meeting, right? It's the it is a a you know content neutral principle, and so that I think matters, and I also think it just matters on a broader scale because you know if if we're getting to a point where public jobs are just not something that people will want to hold because of the level of violence against them in this country. And that strikes me as a really alarming development, whether or not you think that DOJ should have a hand in it. Well, unfortunately, we will have to leave the conversation there. But before we leave this week's episode, we do, of course, have some object lessons for you. Quinta, let me turn it over to you to get us started. I have recommended television shows on Rational Security before, and I will do it again. Uh, Succession is back. I'm very excited. This is, uh, for those of you not already on the Succession train, the HBO show about a Murdoch family lookalike battling over who will control the faux Murdoch empire. It is extremely entertaining. It was away for two years because of the pandemic. The first episode that just aired this last Sunday included lengthy conversations about, you know, Justice Department prosecutions of the company in question. There are no spoilers here. Uh, there, there was talk of the DAG, although they said it DAG, which was very upsetting to me personally. No one says DAG. No one says just if the Succession Writers Room is listening, it's DAG. Thank you very much. But I do okay. say DAAG. That's true, but they were saying DAG. I think to be consistent, we need in to context, D- Scott, In context, it was clear that it was the deputy attorney well, general. I'm just saying I've been rooting for DAG to become just common. <laughs> when I was at DOJ, some, sometimes we would do that as a joke and actually put the put the umlaut there and say DAG, like Hagen <laughs> That's dog good. That's good. With the ice cream. 
the dream. I gotta say, I have had trouble getting into Succession. I watched the first oh, two seasons. So my wife was into it, and like, I cannot watch it. They are just all so utterly irredeemable. They're such sociopaths. Oh, that's totally true. Yeah, uh, I know that's part the worst. of the point. And the acting's really good, and it's legitimately funny. And if you like, just can can just give up your soul for like an hour and laugh. It's a great, oh man. But I like, I had trouble getting into it, but I am excited it's back for the, for the many people I know who really love that show. So. Scott just talked into it. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, maybe, maybe DOJ will show up more as for, for, you know, lawfare, lawfare listeners, people with, who've interacted with the federal government. Maybe there's something for you here in this one. I'm a sucker for acronyms. That sounds great to me. Maybe we could get DAG Lisa Monaco to, to show up on the, uh, do a little cameo. Oh, well, Alan, what do you have for us this week? So my object lesson is is also a TV recommendation, but I, I am recommending future TV by way of recommending a past movie. I am very excited to report that History of the World Part 2 is in development. So for those of you who, who may not be quite as excited as I am, in 1981, the great comedian Mel Gibson. In 1981, what? the great comedian... Mel Brooks, not Mel Gibson. I was just silently stealing myself to not say Gibson. I really want to see the Mel Gibson version of this because it's going to be very different. History of the world. Yeah, we we know we we got it with the Passion of the Christ. And yeah, so Mel Brooks, not Mel Gibson. Wow, that would be a very different show. In 1981, Mel Brooks released the very funny History of the World Part 1, which is a series of like spoof sketches from world history. It's just, it's great. Great stuff on the French Revolution, great stuff on the 15, no, 10 commandments. Those of you who get that will laugh. Those of you who won't, go watch the movie. And when I saw it, I was like, I don't know, nine years old. This was in the mid-90s. And at the end of the History of the World Part 1, there is a teaser trailer for History of the World Part 2, which includes such fantastic scenes as Hitler on ice and my favorite and everyone's favorite, Jews in space, which is not about Jewish space lasers, but it is about flying star of David's spaceships. And as an impressionable nine-year-old, I was so excited that for the next six months, I would go to my neighborhood blockbusters because in the mid-90s, blockbusters was still a thing. And I would ask the clerks for History of the World Part Two, And they had no idea what I was talking about until one clerk finally kindly informed me that it was all a joke and there was no History of the World Part Two, And I was very, very sad. And I am now happy because I will get to watch History of the World Part 2 by Mel Brooks. Alan, I did the exact same thing when I was a kid or that exact same thing. Did you? I think a lot of us did. Listeners, please reply on Twitter if you as well. If you also, as a nine-year-old in the middle of the 90s, went around looking for History of the World Part 2. But the thing that everyone needs to see from Part 1 to understand how wonderful it is, is the seven-minute musical segment of Torquemada singing about the auto de fe. It is so offensive and so terrible, but so beautifully executed and just really phenomenal. It's really worth watching. It may appear in our show notes for this particular episode as a teaser for people. I am super excited. I didn't know this was happening until you just said it. I'm super excited about it. So that, that's a great news. Well, for my object lesson, I actually have a television show as well. We did not plan this, obviously. We would have mixed it up with some booze or something. Um, but I'm excited because I have really been enjoying a show in ways that I did not expect that really speaks to podcast listening audiences. So I would share it, which is the only murder in the building show that is currently on Hulu with Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez. 
I guess they decided to recast Chevy Chase with Selena Gomez from their old sort of 80s adventures. I kind of went into this story to watch it thinking it was going to be like a Three Amigos, Fathers of the Bride sort of like reunion thing between Steve Martin and Martin Short, uh, who have done some like live shows and stuff for years. are always super charming together. It's not that at all. He's it's- a genius and we need his mind. <laughs> It is, it is, it is a very, it's actually like a really clever, really well done TV show. It's like got different narrative perspectives. It's actually got a genuine mystery. It's got some dark moments to it. Some like really poignant moments. Um, It's a very different show. And then it's also very funny. So I like highly, highly recommend this to people. And so hopefully uh, you guys can check it out. I think the finale is premiering tonight uh, that we're recording Tuesday. So yesterday for when you're listening to this. So that means it is now officially bingeable, as Steve Martin announced on his Twitter. So you don't have to do what I've been doing, which is something I haven't done for years, which is actually watching each episode week by week. Instead, you can do what I want to do and just watch it all in one sitting. So get on it. Wait, Scott, I have I have one question for you. I've been I've seen people write and talk about this show, and I don't understand the title. Does the building contain only murder? Murder? Like what? What does the only modify here? What is happening? The title is not great. I agree because I actually had the same question and took a while to figure it out. It is because they said, "What are we going to cover in our podcast?" The, the stars of the show host a real crime, true crime podcast, and they said, "What are we going to do? We can't just do about any murder." They said, "We're only going to do murders in the building because they all live in the same building together." And so that's it. Okay. I agree. The title you said it, it. it turned me off a little bit at first because grammatically it was very confusing what they were talking about. But I will say one of the joys of the show is that the three hosts consistently are randomly interacting with people and meet random people who also have podcasts that are slightly more successful than theirs, which struck a real nerve with me. Uh, so as I'm sure it will for you too. So I, I will say it's got that kind of common note that kind of uh, really spoke to me once I started digging into it. All right, Alvaro, why don't you bring us home? Yeah, so unfortunately, I do not have a show recommendation. I guess I missed the memo. But so last week, uh, Saudi Arabia's public investment fund was recently able to buy its own soccer club in England. The finance consortium was able to buy English Premier League club Newcastle for over 300 million pounds. And two years removed since Khashoggi's death, this again illustrates the importance and power of sports whitewashing. Today's digital age, two years removed from the death of a journalist, you can see some club now taken over from someone who was partially involved, or depends who you ask, or heavily involved. And now we are a year away from the World Cup, where a lot of human rights violations are occurring. And despite all this, it's still slated to occur. So no, just another extensive account. No, well, thank you. Thank you for that, Alvaro. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you will find liner notes for this episode, including links to the articles and object lessons we have discussed. You can also purchase Rational Security swag at lawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including a committed ad-free feed for this very podcast. Please do follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L security and wherever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass it along to your loved ones. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are, of course, edited by the eternal and wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. And on behalf of my co-host, Quinten Allen, and our special guest, Alvaro Marignon, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.